The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Though His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this series of episodes, we continue a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Thessalonians using proper hermeneutical and exegetical principles. Our goal is to understand not only the details of what was going on at the time that this book was written, but more importantly, to understand what it is saying to God's elect in the church today. The reason, as stated before, is that 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, states that God's word, the Bible, is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And again, this is because our presuppositional approach and our biblical worldview as God's saints is that God is the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, truth, beauty, significance, and reality. Further, 
Our assumption is that God has chosen to reveal himself and his attributes, his relationship to man, his plan of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and glorification via his Holy Spirit, who breathes God's revelation into his word, the Bible. As you recall, in our last episode, we were undertaking the discussion in chapter 5 of First Thessalonians, wherein Paul transitions to talking about eschatology, or the study of last things. In verse 1, he opens the discussion by saying that the Thessalonians has no need for him to discuss the times and the seasons because they were already familiar with it in that culture at that time. Secondly, he penned the verse so often misquoted today saying, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Having done a survey of scripture for the phrase, the day of the Lord, what we realized was that Paul was most likely referring to a period of time referred to as the Great Tribulation, or God's wrath, a period of seven years yet to come. Further, because of verse 4 and what Paul says there, quote, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. We realize that the misquoted verse in verse 3 actually refers to the world, those in darkness, those without discernment, who do not know or do not recognize or will not be prepared for the day of the Lord and are thus overtaken as a thief. In contrast to the church, those who are God's elect, who because of discernment and a relationship with the Lord, will very much be prepared because of that discernment and that relationship. Further in verse 5, Paul goes on to state that the church, the elect, are the children of light, the children of the day, and not of darkness. Finally, as we concluded our last episode, we have Paul giving the admonition in verse 6 to the church, saying, Let us, the church, the elect, not sleep as others do, but watch and be sober. What we pointed out, as you recall, is the words sleep and sobriety are used for metaphors which speak of the tendency of even the church because of each believer's old nature that still remains to become bogged down and to return to the things of the world and by doing so get caught up in worldly pursuits, fleshly worries, and other things which distract us from the reality that the Lord is coming. This then brings us up to date, and if you would, then open your copy of God's Word, where we continue where we left off in verse 7 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul speaking here says, for they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. Now, here, logically speaking, verse 7 is an axiomatic statement when understood properly. Those who are asleep, i.e. those who are spiritually dead or 
unregenerate are in that condition because they are in darkness. They are still captive to Satan, the flesh, sin, separation, and rebellion against God. Those who are intoxicated by the pride of life, the things of this world, the flesh, are in that condition for the same reason. The new nature produces fruit. The old nature produces sin, separation, rebellion, and antagonism against God and the things of God. The new nature produces the things of God. In verse 8, Paul gives the antidote, the solution to that dilemma. He says, but let us, that is the elect, the church, the outcalled ones, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet and the hope of salvation. So verses 6 through 8 continue with the dichotomy of why there are some who are caught unaware by the Lord's coming as a, quote, thief in the night, unquote, versus, versus those who are prepared. The natural man, those who are unregenerate, who has not been redeemed, neither knows the Lord nor cares. They are asleep. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They are drunken. They are intoxicated by their fleshly lusts. They cannot know or discern the things of the Lord or of the Spirit. Contrasting, those who are born from above and redeemed are sober. They prepare themselves like a soldier prepares for battle against the enemy. Verse 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, once again, it's important to look at the Greek grammar of this sentence in its original form. Again, when you want to emphasize the importance of something, in Greek you take the word or words that you wish to emphasize and you put them at the beginning of the sentence. In this case, the Greek words hotaoi, translated, quote, has not, unquote. Secondly, we have the word appointed, which simply in the original means ordained or purposed. Thirdly, we have the word salvation, a purchased possession or property. So, overall, the emphasis in this sentence, as paraphrased, should be, quote, for God has not ordained or purposed us. Who's the us? The church, the outcalled ones, his elect. Those of us who are soteriologically covered from his wrath, but as a purchased possession by means of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you ask, okay, what does all this mean? Well, what it means is here, this verse connects 
all the way back to chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul is comforting, as you recall, those in the Thessalonian church who were being persecuted of their hope. Remember, it says, quote, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come, unquote. So this, quote, wrath to come is, as we pointed out just moments ago, synonymous. It is the same as the, quote, day of the Lord, unquote, which is coming as a, quote, thief in the night, unquote, for those who are in darkness, while at the same time, for those who are God's elect, it is so well known that Paul need not write about it, as you will recall in chapter 5, verse 1. So the important thing is that the church, God's elect, is not appointed to God's wrath. Rather, they are appointed to salvation. Now, just to further expound on this, this verse of chapter 5, verse 9, 1 Thessalonians, which states, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, is a straight shot with an arrow to the bullseye, which affects the issue and the question of eschatology. You ask, what are you talking about? Well, just very quickly, there are only so many theories with regard to the issue of the timing of the rapture, which is what we're discussing. The first theory is that of the pre-tribulational rapture. In this theory, the rapture, Jesus coming from, for his elect to take them from the earth to heaven, occurs before the seven years of tribulation, God's wrath being poured out on the earth. The second theory is often called the mid-tribulational theory. In this theory, those who are God's elect are raptured, taken out of the earth during the middle portion of God's wrath being poured out on the earth. The third theory is the post-tribulational theory, wherein God's elect are being raptured or taken off of the earth after the seven years of God's wrath and or the tribulation being poured out on the earth. And lastly, just to complete the theories, there is a theory called the pre-wrath tribulation, wherein God's elect are raptured from the earth prior to God's wrath, as opposed to the tribulation being poured out, because in that theory, those who hold to the theory draw a distinction between God's wrath and the great tribulation as being different in timing. Now, without getting into too much further detail, the point to be made here is that verse 9 clearly says that God has not appointed us 
the us being the church, the elect, God's outcalled ones, to his wrath, but rather to obtain salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. What this verse does is this verse connects the issue of eschatology to soteriology. Again, you ask, what do you mean by that? Well, we have to digress and we have to ask the question about God's wrath. The question is, why is God going to pour out his wrath on the world? The answer is that because of what happened in Genesis 3, with all of mankind choosing to sin against God and to rebel against God, that as a result of that choice, that we all, each and every man, woman, and child, justly deserve God's wrath to be poured out on us and to be thrown into hell. That is a complete, just act on the part of God. However, because of God's mercy, He, in His sovereign will, chooses some to elect, to save from that wrath, and he did so by sending his son, Jesus. And in Jesus' incarnation as God in flesh, God the Father poured out his wrath upon his son, Jesus, on the cross as Jesus hung there and took our sins upon himself. So God's wrath was poured out on Jesus for our sins. This is the same wrath that God would have had towards us who had sinned against him. Now, question number two. How much wrath did God pour out on his son Jesus in our place? Did he pour out 50%? 80%? 90%? Or did he pour out all 100% of his wrath on his son so that we who are in Christ would be free and clear by reason of Jesus's imputed righteousness and having taken our sin upon himself 100%. The answer is he did 100%. Okay, third question. If God's wrath was poured out on his son 100% for those who are in Christ, then as we move from soteriology to eschatology and the future of the last days where God pours out his wrath, who is he pouring his wrath out on? He's pouring his wrath out in the future on an unregenerate, rebellious world who have never taken Christ as their Lord and Savior. Therefore, they have no atonement. They have no propitiation. They have no covering grace because they never took advantage of it. But conversely, all throughout history since Jesus rose again, who have taken advantage of it, have their sins 100% covered, and therefore, there's no more wrath to be poured out on those people because Jesus covers all sin, past, present, and future. 
This is what Paul is recognizing in verse 9. Again, for God hath not appointed us, those who are in Christ, who have already had his wrath poured out on Christ, to then be appointed to more wrath? No. Any wrath? No. There is no wrath because it was poured out on Christ. The only wrath left is for those who have never been in Christ, who have never recognized him, accepted him, and as a result of that, had their sin placed in Christ and God's wrath poured out on him. You see, what happened on Calvary was the atonement that Jesus made was sufficient for the entire world of mankind, past, present, and future. But it was only efficient for those who have actually been called and chosen and are placed in Christ and therefore have their sins covered because God's wrath is poured out on Christ. So once again, God hath not appointed that group to wrath, but instead to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, just as described. So this is the disconnect with regard to the theories of the tribulation. Most of them do not take into account how those theories affect soteriology. Any theory which places God's elect, the church, as being a victim, if you will, of God's wrath in the future because of sin, overlooks and dismisses what happened on Calvary with God's wrath being poured out on his son Christ for anyone and everyone who would at any point be in Christ as a result of God's grace. For anyone, for any child of God, for any elect of God to again suffer God's wrath would to that degree diminish what Christ accomplished on the cross. So the bottom line is that verse 9 clearly paints the picture that whatever eschatological view that we adopt must recognize that the church, God's elect, is not appointed to God's wrath. Now you say, well, I remember many verses wherein various people say that there will be tribulation. Yes, including our Lord who says that in this world we will have tribulation, but that tribulation is limited to the tribulation which comes as a result of sin, Satan, the world, and our own flesh. That we will endure. That is what sanctifies us as we turn to God for his sufficiency. However, with regard to God's wrath, which is there as a result of his just anger because of rebellion and sin, that is limited to the world who does not recognize nor have they accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So the two are not the same. Moving on, verse 10. 
who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Now here, the reference to, quote, wake or sleep goes back to chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Those that sleep is a reference to those that are, quote unquote, sleeping or dead at the time Jesus returns. Those who, quote unquote, wake are those who are alive and remain at his coming. Both will be either resurrected or transformed, at which time they both shall live together with him for eternity. Verse 10 is critical to correct soteriology. If, indeed, we be in Christ, then God's wrath, which is due to every human, due to our fallen nature, sin and rebellion, has fallen on Christ. Christ's propitiation and atonement is complete and final for all sin, as we stated. Consequently, if there was any of God's wrath left to fall on any of his church, his elect in Christ, then Christ's atonement was, as stated, incomplete and insufficient. Again, therefore, correct soteriology demands that a correct eschatology prohibits God's wrath due to sin, wickedness, and rebellion from falling on those who are truly in Christ at the time God's wrath falls. This then means that whenever God's wrath falls upon the world, that Christ's church, his elect, are protected and immune. To effect this, God's elect, the church, must either be supernaturally protected if they remain on earth along with the wicked, or the church must be removed or raptured from the earth. As we move to verse 11, we move to the closing salutation of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Verse 11, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. This may sound in part like, oh, we're closing the letter and we're just saying some nice things. However, if you think about it, how would the Thessalonian church, who were enduring intense persecution, imprisonment, and even torture and death, how, how would they go about comforting themselves if the thought process was, well, when you get done with this, it's entirely possible that you will then have to endure God's wrath along with what you're enduring now, which is the tribulation, or not the great tribulation, but just tribulation in general. How would they then comfort themselves with that? They wouldn't be able to, but they would be able to comfort themselves given the a fact that Paul had just assured them that because they were not appointed to God's wrath, that even though they were undergoing persecution, they would escape God's wrath. That would be comforting. So, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. If the Thessalonian saints 
here who are already being persecuted, arrested, incarcerated, and martyred expected that the next phase in their journey was to enter into the great tribulation, i.e. God's wrath, in the future, then what comfort would there be now? Paul could not say, comfort yourselves together, because they would be anything but comforted given the fact that they were already enduring persecution, and now, oh, we're going to go through God's wrath as well? Not comforting. Comforting and edifying is only possible to the Thessalonians, and by extension to us, if the fact is that they are not experiencing the great tribulation, nor will they, or God's wrath. But instead, the fact is that God's wrath has already been poured out on Christ, so they won't have to endure that. Secondly, they will never have to face the tribulation or God's wrath in the future for the same reasons. And lastly, what they are facing now is tribulation, but is not the great tribulation. It's only tribulation, which is common to all people, again, due to sin, the flesh, the world, and Satan. Verse 12, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Here the word know is to have regard for one, to cherish, to pay attention to. In other words, Paul is encouraging the church to honor and to hold in high regard those who were working to support themselves. This was especially true for those who were in leadership positions within the church. This creates the inference that there were those who were not working, but rather supporting their lifestyle on the backs of others who were working. Paul further develops and teaches uh, the Thessalonians regarding this subject in 2 Thessalonians chapter 5. It appears that there were those in the church, or who were being admired by the church, who were advocating cynicism, or a sophist lifestyle. Both of these essentially found ways to avoid work and to support themselves by various schemes wherein others paid the bills. Essentially, Paul exemplified the model here where he worked as a tent maker in order to supply his personal needs while he founded and taught and pastored various churches. Now, this is not to say that any pastor is not worthy of being paid by the church for their service. Instead, this passage deals with those who sponged off the church while producing little or nothing, and while the church itself and its members suffered financially, physically, and spiritually. Verse 13, And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. So the true church, the leader, the shepherd, is not only worthy of their wage, but is entitled to the love and respect of the congregation. 
The reason is that the leader or shepherd loves God and puts the needs of the congregation first. Verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort them that are feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Here the word warn means to caution, to reprove, gently or to admonish and warn. Unruly means deviating from the prescribed order or rule. Feeble-minded means faint-hearted. Weak means more feeble, impotent, sick, or without strength. So, verse 14 summarizes the mandates of a healthy church and its responsibility to the body and to the community. Number one, every true and healthy church must have discipline born out of love with the goal of restoration and welfare of individual souls as well as the health of the whole. Two, the weak, the faint-hearted must be comforted and the comfortable or complacent must be afflicted and challenged. Number three, the poor, the destitute, the infirm, sick and dying must all be the care of the church and those whom God has blessed. And lastly, number four, the sanctified must be patient and long-suffering to those weak in the faith, knowing that we also at one time were such as they are, to the aim that in God's time all should come to the knowledge, the measure, and the stature of the fullness of Christ. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Know the world.